Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to folks making cool stuff at the Southside Hackerspace, discussed marginal literature with a local publisher, spoke about the challenges facing women's issues in the age of Trump, and much more. All this plus the Trump Diaries on Lumpen Week in Review for April 14th, 2017. Melanie Adcock of Texine Chicago spoke to Jessica Fong and Christopher Agux from Southside Hackerspace. They discussed the meaning of the word hacker, how Bridgeport and Pilsen have welcomed tech, and projects involving children's toys and high-altitude balloons. Texine Chicago airs every Friday at 1 p.m. and repeats each Tuesday at 11 a.m. Our next guests, um, Christopher Agox and Jessica Fong, are from the Southside Hackerspace. They're here with us today to tell us about their mission and upcoming events. Christopher, Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. So at Southside Hackerspace Chicago, what we're trying to do is roll back the definition of that word hacker. Uh, We want people who delight in exploring and building interesting things and sharing what they've learned. And I do mean anything, uh, you know, furniture, electronics, art, music, vending machines. Uh, There's so much going on. There's so much exploration and learning and sharing that needs to be done. Can can anyone be a hacker? Yes. um, I actually think it's a common misconception um, that you have to have some special set of skills to be a hacker when... In reality, it comes down to just finding unique ways to solve everyday problems. So mm-hmm. you might be a hacker and you might not even know it. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Really, all you need is the right mindset. And we, we want people who love to explore and create. And uh, we, that said, one of the core tenets is people should be excellent to one another. So no jerks. Now, uh, tell, <clears throat> tell us about um, the space that you have now, the Southside Hacker Space itself. Sure. Um, right now we're renting 1,200 square feet uh, on 37th Street between Morgan and Racine in the building called Bubbly Dynamics. Mm. Um, the other tenants in that space are all, they're very similarly minded. So we have a lot of good collaboration just going on in that building, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And so we've got um, kind of a meeting space that's, uh, you know, it's got tables, it's got projectors. We've got um, a area to work on your projects. You So you've got uh, all kinds of tools, soldering irons, oscilloscopes, screwdrivers, you know, whatever you might need to work on like um, home electronics, things like that. Mm. And we also have a huge, uh, not huge, I wish, I, was, I wish it was huge. We have a pretty good sized um, shop for doing dirty work, so to mm. speak, in the back. So there's um, a lot of woodworking tools. We've got welders. We've got um, grinders, power tools, a whole lot of stuff going on back there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got uh, facilities for 3D printing, laser cutting, oh, things mm-hmm. like that. Laser cutting. Well, and then, well, and I, I saw on your on your website that you have a full electronics bench, and so people can do soldering, and you know, and and you've mentioned a lot of other tools that you have, and people are making electronics, um, which is a uh, which is quite an interesting um, thing. Uh, how, how did you get involved with tech and hacking? I think the exposure to tech and hacking definitely increased when I joined Southside Hackerspace. Before then, it was kind of like what I described before. I was, I've was, i always been, ever since I was a kid, just 
randomly putting together things, paper clips and whatever nonsense to try and fix little things around the house that I'd found that were broken. Or, you know, I'd watch mom make some creative solutions to some things. So I think it's always been there, but it hasn't really been formalized or been exposed to so many of the more awesome tools that we have at Southside Hackerspace until I visited the space and saw like, wow, there's so much more here. There's such a bigger world to kind of dive into. Bridgeport and Pilsen are two Chicago neighborhoods that are kind of here on the south side or near south side, and they're not really thought of as tech areas in Chicago. Um, And usually people think of River North and downtown. Um, They don't think of the south or or west side, you know, as as a place where someone would get inspired to be in tech or whatever. And and how how does your group feel about these socioeconomic and, and geographic biases? We think of ourselves, uh, the Southside Hackerspace, as a community workshop where people can come together and enrich themselves. And Bridgeport and Pilsen offer an exciting confluence. You've got university students, you've got young professionals, and you've got a lot of people down here who are just tremendously smart in their own right, although they might not know computers per se. Mm-hmm. And the Southside Hackerspace is here because there's a need for a workshop or a community center or a meeting place for people like that to get together mm-hmm. that's accessible to people who live south of Division. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'd love it if there was enough passion and excitement and especially funding that every neighborhood in Chicago could have their own hacker space where people could get together, fix their stuff, build stuff, learn from one another, just yeah. share their mm-hmm. passions and their, te- and, their, and their expertise. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've lived in Bridgeport throughout college. And the one thing that really struck me was the attitude towards Mm -hmm. getting things done. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it was just my landlord, but he always like knew a guy. And I, and I like to think that we have a similar attitude at SSH where if a member is interested in learning how to work a machine or in building something that seems beyond their knowledge, we find the right person to help them work through it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think also that Pilsen is such a huge art district Mm -hmm. and art and technology to me, they go hand in hand. So Mm -hmm. I think we're in the right place. Your group consists of and I, I, think I have a list here. Um, nerds, uh, makers, hackers, artists, uh, students, teachers, and other creative people. Now, what is it like when all of these different types of people meet and get together? One of the things we found is that everybody knows something that other people don't. A few years ago, I, I was very deeply passionate about turning wrenches on cars, but I'd never used a table saw in my life. And I've taught people how to change their oil, and I've learned the joy of woodworking. And when you get a lot of people with different skill sets and different passions together, they wind up teaching each other things. And I think everybody leaves a little better off for the experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like a, a good kind of chaos because everyone has so many great ideas. And that's part of the fun is to have these giant you know, brainstorming sessions about absolutely ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like that level of diversity makes us stronger mm-hmm. as an organization. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how does the health, Southside Hackerspace feel about social justice issues? Um, as a nonprofit organization, we we obviously support positive change. Um, we don't have any particular leanings, but many of our members do volunteer for other social justice and uh, action-based nonprofits, mm-hmm. such as the, the Lucy Parsons Lab. 
I guess as individual member projects go, uh, one of our members is currently a student at UIC. Um, mm-hmm. He's studying developmental and pediatric psychology, um, and he's actually yeah. designing a series of wooden toys for children that are interactive specific to their developmental stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's planning on actually donating them to local shelters. Oh. Um, so that's really neat. Um, and then another incredibly exciting project, which is actually quite time sensitive. Um, this August the 21st, um, we're actually going to be experiencing a really amazing eclipse. Um, so to document this event, students kind of across the nation from over 30 different locations are launching high altitude balloons. Um, mm-hmm. And they're going to send live videos and images from near space to NASA's website. So several of our members are working with a few of our friends from MSI, Museum of Science and Industry, mm-hmm. to build and launch their own balloon. Um, so it's going to be really exciting. <laughs> Jeremy Kitchen, Michael Sack, and Jamie Trecker spoke to Cynthia Sherry, publisher of Chicago Review Press, on Lumpin Radio's books and literature show, I-94. Sherry spoke about the perils and satisfactions of publishing what she called marginal literature and how small presses survive in the age of Amazon. She also talked about several new releases, including Hey Liberal by Sean Shiflett. I-94 airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. I wanted to ask you, when this, when this came on your desk, were you, <laughs> were you a little bit shocked about how, how raw the story is? I actually really related to the language in the book because, you know, growing up in Chicago in that time, you know, the racial epitaphs, the, just the kind of way we referred to folks, um, it just really, it, it kind of struck me as kind of shocking this day and age to hear that language, but it, felt, it rang really true for me. Um, and also, I grew up in Lincoln Park in the early 70s. So this is 1969 when the book takes place. Right. Um, but, you know, I just I just remember that, like, you know, the, yeah, the, how tough it was and what it was like to be kind of white in that neighborhood. Is it difficult, though, as a publisher to put out books with extreme profanity, racial slurs and stuff like that? Is it? I mean, yeah, you know, especially with the other younger editors that I work with, you know, they would come up to me and they just you know, we're kind of like, I, I don't know if we can publish this. And I'm like, well, that's how we talked. That was, that was the way. I, re- I really appreciated it as a reader. We've had argument, you know, we've talked about this argument, the political correctness argument in literature. And um, I had mentioned earlier on a, a, a previous episode, there was a book by Charles Beaumont who actually ended up writing some of the Twilight Zones. And the, there was a big criticism of in, in the New York Times book review because of the language, but it was written in the 50s. I'm like, that's how people spoke. And I'm like, you can't sugarcoat the way people were. I mean, you look at Studs Turco, I mean, uh, Studs Lonigan, mm-hmm. any of the old, you know, immigrant stories, you know, racism is part of that story. And I think if you sugarcoat it, you're doing a disservice to both sides. That's my opinion. Well, I mean, as a pub- that, that's an interesting point. I'd like to hear the publisher's take on that because it would strike me as it would be fundamentally dishonest and take away something from the story if that wasn't there. Right, exactly. And that's, you know, why I called it out as an honest novel in the back cover copy and also the tinderbox because you get the racial tension. It was very uh, palpable at the time. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot going on politically um, and socially, civically, but there are a lot of problems that aren't necessarily related to race. It's secondary. There are education problems. There are poverty problems. Class. Class. But the thing people tend to focus on is, is, is race. So there are oftentimes in the novel where things just blurt out of characters. Um, 
profanity and, and, and uh, racial slurs that arise from other frustrations. And that just seems so much like real life to me. You see it now, yeah. depending on what kind of crowd you hang in. Well, that's what I actually wanted to ask you again, Cynthia. This seems like a book that, while it is set in the 1960s, it is almost topical to what's going on in Chicago today with a very still a very segregated city, still a lot of contestation over Chicago public schools. I believe our mayor's trying to close a number of other schools, primarily in Englewood, primarily in African-American majority districts again. Um, did you, when you saw this manuscript, did you feel that this was a book that would resonate right now? We, we talk a lot on this show about um, how fiction and how literature allows people to work through present day problems, even where, regardless of where they're set, regardless of it's science fiction, fantasy, whatever, the themes that come in the book uh, oftentimes help people relate to things going around them today. Absolutely. I mean, the police brutality that goes on in the book, um, just the beleaguered public school system. Uh, so yeah, much more than just the race issues, but it really resonated with what was happening today. Um, so I think it's very timely. I wanted to mention, too, the two other titles, um, the titles that I'm going to cover, Ugly Play and Miguel's Gifts, one took place in the 20s, which is nonfiction, one took place in the 80s, which is fiction. But they're both regarding immigration, and they're so timely right now. When I was reading this, um, there was an unattractive woman that was put on, basically, on death row for no other reason that she was an immigrant, didn't speak English, and she was unattractive. And you, you look at, like, What's that? Sheriff Brown? Is that his name in Arizona? That oh, Joe Arapasio? Arapasio. You know, he just he just got, I think, removed from, office, removed from office. Finally, you know, yeah. with the tent cities and using, you know, inmates for slave labor, which were essentially, you know, immigrants. You know, we had a guest on the station, actually, that was arrested by him and was working in one of those tents uh, a few out. months ago. It was unbelievable hearing him talk about that. He spent, uh, I believe it was 20 months in so the, the Arapasio's tent city. He said it was brutal. Oh, I can imagine. And, yeah. and this stuff is all topical. And, and this is why literature is important um, for me. You know, I this is how I grew up. I read, you know, I wasn't a very good student. But also, um, you know, I've heard, you know, there's all these cuts in humanities programs at universities and things like that. And this stuff is so important because this is how you learn about other things. Well, before we move on, we should really discuss, Cynthia, you, you guys have a wide range of titles. If, if I remember right, obviously, Chicago Review Press, for people that don't know, local press house formed in 1974. Uh, it was a family-owned business. Uh, started out of a garage, basically. Today, you're the publisher. But you have uh, five other imprints, and you publish a wide variety of titles, some of which we're going to get to today. Uh, they include travel vacation books. They include nonfiction fiction. I wanted to ask you, this has been talked about as a, a difficult time for books and literature. Your press at one point held out against Amazon. Uh, you had a disagreement with them. They wanted to take more money from you. Uh, I wanted to ask you where, first of all, how difficult is it to be a publisher right now in this day and age when it seems that books are thought to be on the decline? And second, how important really is it that you see what you're, what you're doing as a publisher? Well, it's, it is certainly a difficult time in publishing um, as there's a lot of conglomeration and a lot of consolidation going on, both in terms of distribution and where books are sold. That's definitely been a trend that's been happening. On the other side, though, you see uh, books are still being read. E-books didn't take over uh, print books like everybody suspected they would. And a lot of new independent bookstores are opening up all over the country. So... Uh, it's a difficult time, but I think for independent publishing, it's also an exciting time because publishers are opening up shop and, and books are getting published. Um, I do see, see publishing as an important 
cultural role. I mean, we're really not in this business to make a lot of money. You don't make a lot of money publishing books. Uh, it's really about telling stories uh, and telling stories of people who are on the margins for Chicago Review Press um, and just kind of exposing, um, you know, yeah, really the storytelling aspect of it, I think, is really important to us. Um, as far as, like, you know, the business in general, we are in a really good position because we're what I consider a mid-sized publisher, and we own our own distribution company. And our distribution company, Independent Publishers Group, is the second largest distributor of independent books in the country, probably second, yeah, second to Ingram right now. Um, and, uh, and again, that's because Perseus, our other competitors, got eaten up by Ingram. Um, so we're, we, we're kind of we're a boutique publisher, and we get to do the p kinds of publishing that we want to do, but we also have the muscle of a national distributor behind us. So that allows us a lot of uh, sales strength and marketing strength. Uh, so I think our size helps us survive kind of what's happening right well, on, now. On to follow on that, what do you guys look for in a book? I mean, we have a lot of people who are writers, authors, uh, and readers that listen to the show. What what do you guys look in something that, you're, that you want to put out? Yeah, well, um, we're, we're looking for unique stories. So, you know, we're not, we're not following trends. We're not doing sort of Me Too books. And we don't take on subjects that are very sort of big mainstream topics. We tend to go for things that are a little bit quirky, a little bit edgy, and things that the big five publishers that really dominate publishing um, would t wouldn't take a chance on. And so, you know, hence, yeah, you see a book like Pirate Women uh, or, you know, Ugly Prey, you know, these sort of unusual history stories um, and things that, yeah, a bigger house might might just kind of uh, take a pass on. Quick question for you. Um I feel like I get a lot of sentiment from some kind of self-proclaimed intelligentsia community that readership is down, that nobody reads anymore. And well, I can tell I, you as a librarian, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, I mean, one, do you, do you ever feel those kinds of doubts? And two, do you see any kind of proof statistical or anecdotal that, you know, there, there are a ton of readers? You know, that's a really interesting question because I think we're competing as a publisher for a lot of different entertainment channels. Everybody knows when you sit down to do something fun, you can, you know, you there's just so many opportunities with, you know, television and online and, you know, everything. There's, there's a lot more entertainment out there to choose from. But I do think it's kind of um, kind of reformed the readership like people are really into reading books and and they're kind of becoming like information junkies so i kind of see it as a renaissance in a way i did want to mention too I, I remember like around 2005 you would go to library conferences and they'd be like you got to be prepared everything's going to be digital by 2015 <laughs> and what we're learning is in in my career is that people are going back to books they will they tried out a a, a tablet or whatever they're called and I know what they're called, but <laughs> I, I don't approve people. I don't approve. Um, it's one of the few times I'll make a qualitative value judgment. Yes, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm, we've noticed in the library field, and I've seen statistics where three percent of the reading population only uses digital. Some people use like for newspapers or magazines, but people are going back to books in droves. And I continue to read about you know in just uh, trade journals and stuff about the independent bookstores coming back, which is phenomenal. I mean, there's no better way to learn about literature, people, than go to an independent bookstore and talk to the people that work there. Also, I want to point out that you cannot use an iPad in the bathtub. It's it's a very, very bad idea. Oh, you know, okay. I don't, not, not as if I know that from personal experience. <laughs> Take your word for it, Jamie. 
Yeah, no, I just, I also think that the deep dive is kind of going to come back. You know, people who are just getting tired of hearing all these little snippets of information and not knowing, you know, who's saying it, where is it coming from, what's the source. The thing about sitting down and reading a book is you, you know, it's an author who's invested a lot of time in doing research. That's one of the things we look for with Chicago Review Press. You know, we're looking for authors that really know their subject, their material, work with a lot of journalists, uh, people who know how to do deep dive research, and then also tell a good story. But, um, you know, I think that, that there's a hunger for that, that kind of getting the full story. The Trump Diaries. Day 76, April 6th. Devin Nunes will step aside as the head of the House investigation into the Trump administration's ties with Russia. That shock announcement comes in the same day that the Ethics Committee placed him under investigation because of public reports that he may have made unauthorized disclosures of classified information. Nunes claimed that left-wing activist groups drove him out. Nunes also called the charges entirely false and politically motivated. And Senate Republicans used the nuclear option today, fundamentally changing the rules of the Senate in order to confirm Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. The move will have sweeping effects on the court and will increase the hyper-partisan tension in Congress. Neil Gorsuch, who is under fire for alleged plagiarism, is likely to be confirmed on Friday. The toxin used in Syria by government forces on a rebel-head territory was the banned nerve agent Serum, according to results from Turkey's health ministry, which treated many of the wounded. 89 people have not died since the attack, scores more are wounded. The USA is developing options for a military strike in response. And Donald Trump wants to know who's behind the rogue Twitter account slamming his administration's policies. And Twitter is suing to keep him from finding out. The Trump administration issued a subpoena for information to identify the users behind accounts critical of his government. Twitter argued this would violate those users' constitutional rights to free speech. Trump's sensitivity to criticism on the so-called alt-Twitter feeds that mimic most of those federal agencies began with the president's January 20th inauguration, when the official Twitter account of the National Park Service retweeted an image comparing that day's crowd size to a larger one at President Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration, Trump personally called the acting Park Service director to complain. An official Park Service apology on Twitter for the unflattering comparison spawned the activation of the so-called rogue alternative accounts, handles such as Alt-USCIS, Alt-Labor, and Badlands NPS are among a, quote, new and innovative class of users who provide views that are often vigorously opposed to the actions of the administration. The government issued an administrative summons to Twitter on March 14th, demanding the company turn over records to identify the users behind Alt-USCIS. Some Trump supporters have complained that a deep state of Obama holdovers is embedded throughout the federal bureaucracy, trying to undercut the president. Day 77, April 7th. Neil Gorsuch became the 113th justice in the Supreme Court as Republicans succeeded in their audacious gambit to deny President Obama an open seat. Republicans refused to grant nominee Merrick Garland a hearing and then changed the rule on filibusters to shoehorn Gorsuch into the seat vacated by the late Antonin Scalia. Gorsuch is a deeply conservative jurist who is likely to tilt the balance in the court for a generation. And relations between the USA and Russia dipped again in the wake of an American airstrike in a Syrian airfield in retaliation for the deployment of chemical weapons. The Kremlin denounced Trump's use of force and suspended an agreement that shared information about air operations over the country. Putin's office called the missile strike on Syria a significant blow to the Russian-American relationship. In turn, Trump officials suggested Russia bore some responsibility for the chemical weapons attack on Syrian civilians. The Trump administration launched 59 Tomahawk missiles at the Syrian Air Force Base in retaliation for that chemical attack. And job growth disappointed in March with just 98,000 jobs added. 
economists had been anticipating a gain of around 180,000. However, the unemployment was 4.5%, the lowest level in almost a decade. And Trump dropped a summons against Twitter after unflattering publicity after the Trump administration had tried to get the names released of the so-called old Twitter accounts. Twitter had sued, claiming that would violate their constitutional right to free speech. And the CIA had extensive early evidence that Russia was working to help elect Trump president. That did not emerge publicly until after Trump's victory months later, but the CIA had apparently briefed several top-ranking government officials. The CIA also believed several unnamed Trump advisors were working closely with Russia. And Trump plans to sign an executive order targeting the dumping of steel into the U.S. market, a measure aimed mainly at China. Despite that, Trump has been invited and will accept the offer of a state visit from President Xi Jinping of China. Day 78, April 8. A fed up and frustrated Trump reportedly delivered an ultimatum to his two top aides, telling them he had enough of their fights in the media. Work this out, Trump said, according to two people briefed on the exchange. Admonished were the increasingly marginalized Stephen K. Bannon and Rince Priebus over a series of feuds with Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, and his top economic advisor, Gary DeCone. Trump is also considering a shakeup of his senior staff. Day 79, April 9th. Katie McFarland, the former news commentator appointed by President Trump as Deputy National Security Advisor, is expected to leave that position soon and may be nominated to be the ambassador to Singapore. McFarland's departure had been seen as likely since the forced resignation of Michael Flynn, the disgraced three-star general who was Trump's first national security advisor. And Secretary of State Rex Tillerson took a hard line against Russia, saying that the country had been incompetent in allowing Syria to retain chemical weapons. Tillerson also accused Russia of using the same techniques to influence elections in Europe that it had employed in the United States. Tillerson's comments were far more critical of the government of President Putin than anything that has been said in public by Donald Trump. Day 80, April 10th. Neil Gorsuch was sworn in as the 113th Justice of the Supreme Court, placing a staunch conservative into the seat once occupied by Justice Antonin Scalia. Gorsuch, 49, took his oath in the White House Rose Garden, with Trump looking on. Justice Anthony M. Kennedy, often a swing vote who holds the balance of power in the court, presided. And Representative Hakeem Jeffries, a New York Democrat, said this week that tax code changes should be delayed until members of Congress can review Trump's tax returns to see how an overhaul of the tax code might benefit him. Terry Sewell, an Alabama Democrat on the Ways and Means Committee, also declared at a hearing that it was, quote, imperative to know how such tax reform affects the president. Trump as president is legally exempt from the kinds of financial conflicts of interest that other government officials are required to avoid. Raytheon stocks surged Friday morning after 59 of the company's Tomahawk missiles were used to strike Syria in Trump's first major military operation as president. The strikes added nearly $5 billion in market value to the company. Trump stands to profit off that Raytheon stock as he owns significant holdings in the company. Trump has previously benefited from other stocks affected by his decisions. In November 2016, the then-president-elect profited off of Energy Transfer Partners' Dakota Access Pipeline, completion of which he greenlit as president. And in December 2016, he was said to hold stock in Carrier, with whom he had just negotiated a pre-inaugural deal. Day 81, April 11th. The FBI obtained a secret court order last summer to monitor the communications of an advisor to Trump, part of an investigation into possible links between Russia and the campaign. The FBI and the Justice Department targeted Carter Page's communications after convincing a FISA judge that there was probable cause to believe Page was acting as an agent of a foreign power, in this case, Russia. This is the clearest evidence so far that the FBI had reason to believe during the 2016 presidential campaign that a Trump campaign advisor was in touch with Russian agents. 
The White House accused the Russian government on Tuesday of engaging in a cover-up of the chemical weapons attack last week by Syrian forces that prompted American missile strikes, saying that United States intelligence and numerous reports confirmed that the Syrians used sarin gas in their own people. The strongly worded document calls for international condemnation of Syria's use of chemical weapons and harshly criticizes Russia for shielding an ally that has used weapons of mass destruction. The charges came as Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, was preparing for meetings in Moscow and as Congress and the FBI are investigating potential ties between Trump's campaign and Russia. And the White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, suggested that President Bashar al-Assad of Syria was guilty of acts worse than Hitler and asserted that Hitler had not used chemical weapons, drawing outrage. Said Spicer, you know, you had someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to using chemical weapons. The comments came during the High Holy Days of Passover. Hitler, in fact, used brutal methods, including gas, to exterminate six million Jews and others. Mr. Spicer later apologized. Day 82, April 12th. The Daily Mail newspaper settled a libel case with Melania Trump over an article about her modeling career. The newspaper had reported allegations that Melania Trump once worked as an escort, but retracted that article. Mrs. Trump sought damages of $150 million. However, the amount accepted by Mrs. Trump was not disclosed in court. Reports suggest the payout was closer to $3 million, including legal costs, damages, and a published apology. And Donald Trump's approval ratings remained in the sewer, stuck at 34%. Some congressmen are starting to worry about Trump's low approval ratings, with Mitch McConnell saying it will damage the president's agenda. These are the Trump Diaries. Bridgeport spoke to Kyle and Sebastian from the Chicago Women's Foundation about Title IX, funding for women's health, and how the budget crisis in Illinois is killing nonprofits. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Welcome back. You're listening to Radio Free Bridgeport right here on WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. And we are joined right now by Kyle Ann Sebastian. She is the communications manager for the Chicago Foundation for Women. We'd kind of like to start at the top. Tell us what the Chicago Foundation for Women, first of all, specifically does for the, the area. Sure. So Chicago Foundation for Women is a community foundation. Um, We were founded in 1985 by four women from the Chicagoland area. And this was at a time when only, I think, 3% of all philanthropic dollars went to support programming specifically for women and girls. Um, Since 1985, we've gotten that number up to a whopping 7%. So we're making progress, but there's obviously women and girls have very specific needs. And while there are lots of great programs that serve everyone and women and girls benefit from that, they have very specific needs and challenges and we fund programs that address those. So interpersonal violence, economic security and access to health and information and services. And then in addition to funding those services, we also do issue advocacy around policies and issues that are important to women throughout their lifespan. So from very, very young to senior women. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. And I mean, I, I think the first obvious question that comes up to me is, 
we're in a very unusual era where we have a president who has been caught on tape making disparaging remarks about women, uh, sexual harassment. We have a major news network in, in Fox News that has uh, twice been besieged by allegations of sexual harassment, yet they set a lot of the tone for the debate. Is it a challenge in this day and age to do the work that you feel needs to be done? Or have you, such as the ACLU, seen as a result of this that more people are open to the the kind of message and, and the work you're kind of trying to do? There's kind of two sides to that. Um, obviously, a lot of these conversations that we're having, we are very glad that that we are having them because they're clearly um, conversations about sexual harassment in the workplace, women in politics. All of these things are clearly things that need to be talked about. Um, we just wish we were a little farther along in the conversation. So we've been really heartened to see the outpouring of interest and support for women and women's issues in the last couple of months. So it's definitely made having the conversations easier because it feels very urgent and relevant to everyone's lives right now. And has we, I don't know that anyone in the history of the foundation has seen quite this level of interest and engagement around the issues that we're working on. So there's one really key issue is HB 40, which is a House bill uh, sponsored by Sarah Feigenholtz. And there is currently language in Illinois' criminal code that says that if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, abortion will immediately become illegal. Abortion and several forms of birth control will become illegal in Illinois because it is in the criminal code that life begins at conception. So IUDs, emergency contraception, and then abortion would not be allowed in our state. So she's proposed legislation that would remove that language and make sure that we are protecting women's access to reproductive choice in Illinois, which is not just important for Illinois women because women from Missouri and Indiana and Wisconsin all come to Illinois for their reproductive health care. I think something like half of the patients that come into Illinois from Indiana are coming for reproductive care. And how much attention has this bill been getting? This is, could be Canada, kind of the first I've heard of this. I think it, you know, travels within certain circles. The bill is out of committee, but it is sitting in the House. It has not been called for a debate in the House. And that, I mean, seems to be a theme that we are seeing in Springfield, is that things are kind of in a holding pattern. Obviously, the continued budget impasse is not good for women, you know, we've got drastically reduced funding for child care, which hurts working moms and dads. The domestic violence services in Illinois have not received state funding or reimbursement for services that they are providing survivors of domestic violence in something like eight months. So we have zero dollars for domestic violence services in Illinois right now, which leaves a lot of those service providers at risk of closing, which will have very real consequences for women that are trying to leave abusive relationships if they're going to a hotline or a shelter and those services are no longer available. So on all of those fronts, things in Illinois, I mean, like there is a very real need for women to to speak up and put pressure on Springfield to put in place a responsible budget. I think when we talk about Issues and, and we see this kind of across the board when we talk about violence in Chicago or we talk about crime in Chicago. It's often looked at as an issue that primarily affects men and boys. And obviously, when you look at uh, statistics in the city of Chicago, like on, on the grand scale, that is true. But it affects 
women and girls differently. They're more likely to be victims of violent crime. And as we're seeing, they are now becoming more involved in the other end of this and ending up in the uh, um, prison system. We've heard a lot from DC about women's health care. And it, it's always been associated with uh, one issue. And they're, and they're constantly slamming places like um, and organizations like Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of uh, unravel the, those conversations? What, what, what exactly um, uh, is at the core? And, and you talked about, about needs that are essential and services that are delivered here in Illinois. And some of those organizations are part of the way that those services are delivered. What are people missing when they're only thinking about one issue? The conversation about women's health and funding for women's health tends to get wrapped up in a conversation about abortion. And that's kind of the argument that seems to be at at the root of these efforts to defund organizations like Planned Parenthood. Uh, and one thing that is really important to note is that at this at this moment, there are no federal dollars that go to abortion care or abortion services. That is prohibited by the Hyde Amendment, which is part of the budget. So taxpayer dollars at the federal level and in Illinois do not go to abortion care. So if that is your sticking issue, the government has already already addressed that. So by removing funding from an organization like Planned Parenthood, which provides services kind of for the full scope of reproductive care. Um, so it's also when you defund Planned Parenthood, you're also defunding STI testing. You're also defunding breast exams so that women can get screened for early signs for cancer. For a lot of people, that is their primary healthcare touch point. And having said that, when when you when you talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, it's not that it's not that Planned Parenthood gets a check from the government. They're not a budget line item. What you're saying is that they won't be reimbursed for services that they give people with Medicaid, with um, government health insurance. So the the people that are being hit by that and the people that you are telling you can't go and access these services are primor- primarily poor women and their families. Planned Parenthood will continue to exist regardless of what the federal government does. The issue is whether poor women who need healthcare services just like anyone else will be able to get them without having to travel extreme, burdensome distances. We are lucky to live in a state that has comprehensive sex ed, which is something that everyone should be able to get behind because it improves health and it prevents unwanted pregnancies. So if, just to put on the table, if abortion isn't in uh, the Planned Parenthood federal dollars question, just taking that right to the side, why do you think there has been such a push to close down women's health providers, such as Planned Parenthood. It can't all just be about abortion. It seems that there's something deeper going on here. We saw in, even in the debate around the health care bill, this perception that maternity care and, and services around women's health are not essential health services. They're extras because, because the majority of the people in that room didn't need them, right? Regardless of the fact that, you know, they, they came from someone that needed maternity care. So I think Cecile Richards has, um, who's the, the president of, of Planned Parenthood, has a very good point that if there were more women in Congress and in elected office who, you know, recognize the importance of these services and the necessity of them, we wouldn't be having these conversations. 
wanted to bring up the question of Title IX, which a, a lot of people aren't necessarily talking about. Title IX seems to be under threat from the Trump administration, and it's been expanded to include a lot more things than just sports. It's been used, obviously, in a number of cases at colleges to protect women from sexual assault. Could you discuss that? Title IX is interesting because of how many aspects of women's education that it touches. Um, I mean, I think Title IX for a long time was kind of like the women's sports. It's why we have people like Billie Jean King and all of these amazing female athletes. But I think what Title IX has become known for recently is as a mechanism for uh, strongly encouraging schools to take proactive approaches to preventing sexual assault on campus. So I think any sort of a failure to enforce Title IX as as it relates to equity in athletics and sports, but also in terms of women's education and their right to, to pursue that education without the threat of, of sexual assault or gender-based violence is really critical to women's continued equity and progress. And Title IX, just to be clear, what, what uh, Kyle's referring to here in Title IX is the guarantee of equity and safe access to education. The sports, this is controversial in some circles. Um, Jeff Sessions, I believe, has come out and said that Title IX was not intended to do this. Mm -hmm. It was intended as a mechanism to make sure that there were equal opportunities in terms of sport and sport only. This is an expansion, however, particularly when we saw this at uh, Princeton, at Stanford, at a couple high-profile cases. It's not a novel reading of the law, it should be pointed out. It's a fairly straightforward reading of the law, but it is under threat from the idea that this wasn't the original intent of the law. Does that concern you, the fact that you have a group of people who pretend to kind of be originalists, pretending that they, they know what it is, when in reality what they're doing is shifting a powerful tool that allowed people's safety and equity to take it right off the table? We're seeing this across a lot of things with the Justice Department, but you know, pursuant to what you guys are actually doing, are you, are you deeply concerned about that? I think the issue of, I mean, Title IX is, is we've seen in the last couple of years that that mechanism has been necessary to get schools to take action. This, it feels like that this wasn't as much of a conversation before the last couple of years, even though we know that sexual assault has been happening on campus forever. But the fact that something like one in four college women will be assaulted like during her college career, that's, I mean, that's ep epidemic levels. So something, action needs to be taken at some level. And if the federal government isn't going to be the one to enforce that, that I think that's concerning. The Don't Call Me Sweetheart show presented the audio essay Lesser Than by Sadaf Ferdowsi, a poignant look at a young Iranian-American woman. Don't Call Me Sweetheart presents live radio plays, humor, and essays on the second and fourth Saturday of each month at 2 p.m. I am five. My dad and I weave around the small round tables on my first day of kindergarten. At a table towards the back, there's a name tag with block letters I am beginning to recognize. S-A-D-A-F. My dad tells me to sit here and he leaves. I watch all the other kids file in and sit by their own names so I don't have to watch my dad walk away. After every little chair has been filled, our teacher asks us one by one to say our names. Sedef, I say, easing into the first A. 
pronouncing it the way you would a smile. Sedaf, she says, brief staccato. Sedaf, I say again, emphasizing the long A. Yes, Sedaf, she repeats incorrectly and ticks something off on her paper with her pencil. I become Sedaf at home, Sedaf in school. I realize early on it is easier to be split into two people instead of insisting on being one. I am eight. I help my mom study for her citizenship test. I cut index cards into two halves. I number one side of each card one to 27, and on the other side, I write out the corresponding amendment. Not understanding all of the words, but carefully copying them all the same. Some amendments, like the one about guns and the one about cruel and unusual punishment and the ones about states having power, are a sentence long and fit easily on their note cards. For the longer ones, I stop writing when I run out of room. It feels impossible trying to make all the words fit in the small white square. I am 10. I ask my dad to tell me the truth. Did someone in our family crash a plane into the Twin Towers? He looks ashamed of me and says no. Part of me knew that the suspicion was not true, but I was so overwhelmed by the fear and paranoia surrounding me that I had to make sure. Flooded by relief at his answer, I do not dwell too long on the look on his face. A battle awakens within me. I am caught between two opposing evils and only one may claim victory. One evil is sacrificing the integral part of me that feels attached to another country, to its cultures and customs, and most importantly all the family I have there, whom I love. But at the same time I feel a crushing sense of national duty to suppress my love because seemingly overnight, the country of my birth has found some newfound fear for this forbidden country. But then again, another duty lurks, the duty to educate and to inform my peers, who are still school children, but still fellow citizens, that there has been a huge misunderstanding. I subject anyone who will listen to long-winded explanations about the importance of not conflating Iranians and Muslims, Islam and terror. Eventually, I give up on this and I surrender. I select the evil that lets me negotiate less. I am 13. All of us at school are obsessed with the game Would You Rather. Our voices echo and bounce around the cafeteria as we crowd around each other during lunch. In this game, you juxtapose two different but equally horrific options and ask everyone which one they would rather choose. It's a fun game partly because of all the freaky combinations we come up with, but what I love the most about this game is how much it reveals about people, what their limits are, what they're vulnerable to. For example, if you ask, would you rather have pimples forever or be a virgin forever, and the answer is pimples, then you know someone is driven more by loneliness than by vanity. One afternoon, someone asks me, would you rather be all Iranian or all American? All along, I thought my Iranian parents and my American birth made me both, but my inability to pick an answer in front of everyone makes me wonder if I'm actually neither. I am 15. My American history teacher divides our class into two groups. One group has to come up with an argument for why it was a good thing to drop the atomic bomb at the end of World War II, while the other group has to argue why it was indefensible. I'm in the pro-atom bomb group. When it's our turn to present, we say that dropping the bomb was the lesser of two evils. 
The bigger evil would mean the war dragging out for many more years and killing even more people because our textbook said the Japanese would have never surrendered otherwise. The anti-atom bomb group don't have any reasons against dropping the bomb other than it was wrong, which our teacher says is not adequately persuasive. This unsettles me. That the default mode of our debate revolved around picking a lesser evil instead of questioning why we have to accept evil over good in the first place. I am 17. We read the picture of Dorian Gray for AP Comp. In this book, Dorian exchanges the soul for everlasting youth and beauty. Dorian, I notice, is a crappy guy, but no one seems to mind precisely because he is so young and beautiful. I constantly worry that I will never be beautiful, that my hair is too dark and too frizzy, that I shouldn't have a unibrow, that everyone can notice the fuzz above my upper lip and the hair on my legs that my mom prohibits me from removing. She says she didn't do anything to change her appearance until after she was married, and I know it's no use to argue that things are different here. I sneak a razor into the house and cut up my legs. I sneak in wax and burn my face, which stays red for a week. I ignore the moral in the picture of Dorian Gray that while aging has no mercy, it is better to accept this evil than to succumb to your vanity. This is the first time that I think about how even consciously selecting the lesser evil does not make it easier to accept. I am 21. I'm at a party in my third year of college and I witness some guys yelling rape jokes to each other over the beer pong table. Their laughter is like thunder in the cramped living room. It's instinct. I look for women who avert their eyes quickly or dash out the room or hold their stomachs or cross their arms as reflexive gestures to protect themselves. I see one girl, her face turning pale, her eyes fixed on the depths of her red solo cup. I imagine myself, cheeks ready from booze, eyes flashing with righteousness, striding up to the group of guys and telling them to go F themselves. But in real life, I stay put. I act like I can't hear. Against the cacophony of their yelling and their laughter, I rationalize. That I am their guest and it is not my place to interrupt their beer pong game. That if I offend them in some way, I won't be invited to any more parties. That too many people have already labeled me as too feminist. From time to time, I see the same girl walking around campus and I'm reminded that my desire to socialize was more important than doing the right thing. I'm 25. The Trump and Clinton election is the first one I feel with my body. With the Barack Obama elections, my fears and concerns had manifested themselves as abstractions, mental worries. At the time of his re-election, the housing market crashed, morphed into the housing bubble, floating further out of reach. Those years ago, I was certain that affordable health care for everyone was inevitable, so I reminded myself to be patient. But with this election, I am tender from the wound of rhetoric. I feel it in my stomach when Trump's sexual assault stories are replayed over and over on the news. I feel my heart clang hard each time he or Clinton say, Iran, 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 Iran. I feel so focused on mitigating triggers that I don't think straight. My conservative friends say that Trump is the lesser of two evils, that Clinton had demonstrated 30 years of poor decision-making that encompassed supporting useless wars, breaking government rules, and deploying rhetoric that linked criminality with blackness. My liberal friends concede that Clinton has a certain reputation, but in no way does her deceit compare with Trump's. I wonder what it means that our definitions of evil are so divergent, that we think in terms of lesser. Who is less of a liar? Whose lies are less bad? Who is less evil? I am 25. 
Trump is elected, but so is Ilhan Omar, the first Somali-American and Muslim to serve as a state legislator in Minnesota. On Facebook, I read an article about her. I click on share and caption the article that she has inspired me to stop thinking in terms of lesser, that I wasted years of my life trying to be less Iranian, less feminist, less outspoken, less intelligent, in an effort to make other people comfortable. I backspace and backspace until the message is gone, and I don't post the article. A declaration without action is never more than a half-assed utterance. I am 25. I find myself again confronted with the idea of the lesser of two evils, but this is the first time that I acknowledge that there is a greater evil eclipsing us. The greater evil is that we have ignored the greatest evil of all, the death of our earth. I had spent a lot of time being preoccupied with what is good and what is evil, but I had not thought to think more broadly and see what forces are actually creating a negative impact. I had also failed to notice that there were still more generalized conceptions of good and evil outside of my own internalized musings. I did not see how these categories are political tools that create further divisions, which had also engendered a blossoming of discourse of more acceptable evils. We continue to debate with each other on what evils to accept in the hopes that we will eventually attain our own vision of the world, when instead we ought to come together to preserve the only world we have. At the end of all this, will our divisions matter? Will it matter how I rationalize my acceptance of lesser evils over others? If we continue to concern ourselves by being less or by being great, will this preclude us from ever becoming whole? That was Lesser Than, written and performed by Sadafa Ferdosi. The piece was originally published in Punctuate, a nonfiction magazine recently noted by Poets and Writers magazine as one of the nine new lit magazines you need to read. Sadafa Ferdosi is currently studying for her nonfiction MFA at Columbia College, Chicago. Her writing aims to explore identity, culture, and the politics of as prose. Bad at Sports spoke with John Opera about his upcoming exhibition at Document Gallery. Ocean talks about his experiments with the cyanotype process, his history, and what he needed to put to rest. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. This is Brian Andrews on WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 Lumpin Radio. I'm sitting here with... Duncan McKenzie. And Ryan Peter Miller. Welcome. Uh, and we are joined in this communal space by uh, John Opera and Aaron Gent. Uh, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Uh, so let's thank just, you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> welcome. So, welcome. So let's just uh, jump right in. Uh, you know, John is a uh, photographer or uh, photo materials-based artist. Uh, you've got a show coming up uh, at Document uh, Space that Aaron runs. But let's just jump right into your, your practice, John. So what's up with the show? What are you going to be uh, presenting? Well, what is up with the show? The show is, a, uh, I, I think, a the result of a lot of experimenting that I've been doing over the last five years. Uh, you know, my interest has always been photography, but I think basically what I've trying to do over the what I've been trying to do over the last ten years is expand the definition of it by entering into other types of media, uh, specifically painting. So it's kind of a it's it's a photo show. I I, th- I think of them as photographs, but I think a lot of other people might perceive them uh, as paintings. So I like that confusion. Yeah. Does it piss off both groups then? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think it doesn't piss them off. I think it's, uh, it's confusing. Maybe it's confusing to me too. Uh, 
and, and that's part of the point. I, I think my larger questions have to do with the nature of representation and uh, photography being linked to this kind of automatic indexical uh, interpretation of the world and then where painting enters in, which is really another kind of uh, hallucination. Uh, I, I like to use the word hallucination when, when thinking about photography. Yeah, it, it also seems not only, in, at least with your most recent work, you're also moving more towards abstraction as yeah, well in terms yeah. of the composition. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know, well, I, I have ideas about what that's the result of. But yeah, I, over the last five years, the images just kind of got more and more reductive. And, uh, and I think now it's... Uh, yeah, I'm taking the lens image out as much as I can and, and still having it be a, a photograph. Yeah, because the current work is has gotten very graphic almost, and it's, yeah, it's yeah. abstraction, right? When, when Brian says abstraction, because we went through periods of more psychedelic abstraction as you moved away from kind of real naturalistic image yeah. uh, to these sort of monotone or duotone kind of images with the a real sort of return to modernist graphics making. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, and, and I don't know if, well, you're right. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that's where I started Winner. From. <laughs> Winner. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, uh, it's just something that I think organically came out of the experiments I've been pursuing. Uh, a lot of what I've been doing is uh, – I make certain tools, and so they yield very specific, limited, structured results. And I, yeah, I, I guess somehow that that links to notions in moder moder ma modernism. Yeah, so t trace that trajectory, because I also remember a John Opera making uh, these kind of very, I mean, almost hallucinogenic natural photos that are were just like kind of gorgeous landscapey maybe single figure kind of in the yeah. landscape images that yeah. were kind of rich and intense and and visual that fire under the waterfall yeah image, right? very very much about the tradition of pictures and yeah. then you move through to this kind of monotone or mono what do we say for that monocolor mono mono something uh and um monochrome yeah Mon monochrome there the monochrome. we are thank yeah. you wow. god like, all day i've been how many, we're back how many how many art professors are in the room okay <laughs> landscape yeah because that it interested me how how you move because you move <clears throat> fairly quickly or at least over the last decade yeah in in big-ish jumps across I that know. pond i make i make yeah i make schizophrenic jumps i think <laughs> my work but, the, you know, when, when we were students at SAIC together, the landscape work uh, was uh, part of my history at that point already. You know, I, when I was much younger, uh, I was making those kinds of pictures. And uh, the work that I began making, you know, about a decade ago that was very much about landscape and, and the Kodak moment and, and all that kind of uh, history, that was, in a way, uh, for me, a project I kind of had to resolve in my adulthood, I think, before I, I moved on. Um, so much about that work was about my own personal history and my, my father and being a scientist and uh, just uh, the landscape of where I grew up. And so there were a lot of reasons why I felt a need to, to go back to that. <laughs> The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. 
The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.